1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today I'm joined by Janayo's Dan Shiling, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the National University of Singapore. We'll be talking about her book, The Current Economy: Electricity Markets and Techno-economics, recently published by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much Dr. Ozdan Shiling for joining us today. Thank you so much Dr. Arjan. <laughs> Um, to start off, could you take us through the genesis of your work as an anthropologist? How did you come to anthropology and how did you conceive of this book?
0: Thank you so much. Um, so I'm an economic anthropologist. I, um, I think ever since I was a college student, uh, my interest has been in political economy, you know, as a political science major, um, my, um, the highlight of my education, perhaps the only thing I enjoyed in the first years of my education was reading up on uh, political theory. Uh, Like many of us, I I came to that from a social justice angle. Uh, But I also remember gradually developing this sort of thirst for close-ups, something that spoke to um, everyday life um, a bit more, or spoke of everyday life as well. So I hadn't even heard of anthropology at the time. And I um, actually got really, really into documentary photography for a while. Um, My first years in college, I spent more time in the streets than on campus. Um, And I think that was the thing that taught me that telling stories could be the method of saying something true and important about the world. Um, Later in college, I was lucky enough to be uh, exposed to anthropology and some classes, anthropology and SDS, science and technology studies, around the same time, and I thought, this is it. This is what I should be doing. So that's how I came to anthropology. Uh, My grad school adventure um, started out this way, and this book started out um, during grad school. So... Um, when I got started out, that intersection of economic anthropology and SDS was very exciting. I mean, it's, it's still exciting. Um, there had been a number of market ethnographies that had come out at the time. So this is maybe 2007 when I started my master's, and 9 when I started my PhD. Um, so the angle there, you know, with the market ethnography, ethnographies being looking at exchange as a milieu of value creation, so going beyond that Marxian insistence on production, right? So I knew that I wanted to emulate that. I wanted to do a market ethnography. Uh, I wanted to be on that floor, right, on on that trading floor. I just didn't know yet which market was my market. Um, So my coming to electricity was a bit more serendipitous. Um, By the time I came to MIT, which is where I did my um, PhD in history, anthropology, and SDS, um, I had I was interested in energy, generally. Um, I had done a master's in Middle Eastern studies. I, um, I was studying Arabic. So I was kind of gearing up for an oil thing in the Middle East somewhere, TBD, right? Um, so th- that's, uh, that was my thinking. And then I think it was my first winter break or second winter break at MIT when I thought, I'm, I want to do an internship at an energy consultancy company just to get familiarized with the industry. So then I went off to DC for that, um, all the while hoping that they would assign me to a petroleum project. They assigned me to an electricity project. Um, and I was disappointed because I thought, you know, electricity is not the charismatic fuel that petroleum is. Um, but then I when I gave it a chance really <laughs> Couple things um, that I had no idea about. First of all, I didn't know that there were markets in electricity um, at all. Um, So, should clarify when I say markets, I'm talking about formalized, organized exchanges, right? Like a commodity exchange, think New York Mercantile Exchange, so forth. So, these things had existed in the U.S. since year 2000 or so, and I it was just this thing that I couldn't quite wrap my head around, you know, I thought, isn't, isn't electricity just this monopolistic thing? You know, every consumer just buys from whatever utility is serving their area. I I just didn't know what it could look like. Um, So then I was also reading about smart grids at the time. And um, what I, the the vision that I was reading um, by engineers sort of felt to me that it might have easily belonged in an economics journal, right? They were, so the, the smart grid that they were describing was sort of like it would make Hayek proud, right? Like at this, it's this market form where um, information is freely flowing. The men on the spot are communicating constantly. So that was another question mark. And um, of course, there's also the fact that in SDS, uh, many of the cornerstone works are actually about electrification. So I th- remember that as uh, you know in a new light. Um, but but the presence of electricity was a bit less touched on so yeah I think when I came back to MIT at that point I I, I was saying yeah I, I I have my market I know I know my I found my market and it grew from there um, I think it it was serendipitous but it was um, what I was looking for petroleum's charisma can be a burden Sometimes, I, I, actually, historian Christopher Jones writes about that in, in, in a piece called "Petromyopia." It's um, um, a really insightful article about how petroleum holds our attention in a way that's disproportionate to its share in global energy consumption. So, electricity would let me ask my questions. It would let me do that close-up that I really wanted about, you know, how do people decide to construct a market from scratch? You know, how do they come up with that belief that um, that is, is the best way. Um, and who are those people? What do they do on a daily basis? So those, um, so I think that was a very good fit for me. So the book, the, uh, to get back to your question about how the book was conceived, the book was conceived um, to address that initial puzzle that I had, which is electricity is so quirky; it can't be stored in large quantities, it can't be shipped. It was the poster child for most of the 20th century for how some commodities just can't have a market, right? It was a little textbook example. So what happened? How did it start as a thought experiment in the 80s? And how does it work now? And what kind of critiques does it trigger? So that's that's how it was conceived. It's a puzzle um, that is addressed in each chapter bit by bit. So it kind of builds up to that. Um, So the first chapter um, is looking at that initial process of how a price-making algorithm um, was created um, through an oral history. It looks at that. The second chapter looks at the day-to-day of the floor. Um, The third chapter looks at those future visions uh, to expand the purview of markets through smart grids. And the fourth, final one, uh, looks at the protests that it has elicited across the U.S.,
1: that's fascinating. Well, I personally am thankful to the person that assigned you to electricity um, that led to this book. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned that electricity is a quirky and extraordinary commodity, but it's at the same time mundane. And my next question is about that. So what can be gleaned about electricity markets by understanding electricity as a commodity in this particular way.
0: Right. Um, you're right. It is it is quirky and extraordinary on the one hand, because it is unlike all those objects that uh, political economists of the several last centuries, last several centuries, thought with, right? So Marx was thinking with cotton, in the capital, um, or iron, or Alfred Marshall's uh, so-called founder of neoclassical economics, as we know it was thinking with kitchen utensils when mm-hmm. he was sort of illustrating um, how supply and demand dynamics work. And if I'm sure many of us who've, who've taken Econ 101 in freshman year can remember those examples uh, from our memory as well. My, my professor's example was t-shirts, mm-hmm. the first t-shirt uh, that you ever <laughs> own, you're willing to pay a lot of money for that, and second, a little bit less, etc. cetera. So, Electricity is no cotton. Electricity is no t-shirt. It can't wait for consumers Mm -hmm. to make up their minds. It has to be consumed within seconds or minutes of um, its production. So that physical balance between supply and demand has to be maintained for basically the, the wires not to be blown up. And that economic concern, right, that balance between supply and demand it has not been a sort of an economics textbook ideal, but it has been an engineer, sort of native to electrical engineering from the get-go, from the beginning of electrification, and that's what historians of um, science and technology would tell us. And, I'm, and this is where I come in and I say today too, electricity calls for, um, for that kind of attention to its technicalities, for there to be a market around it. So, again, and today it's price algorithms. So it's, uh, this market algorithm doesn't produce results that would blow up the mm-hmm. wires. So that's the extraordinary part. Um, what's ordinary about it is that every commodity is extraordinary. <laughs> in a way that it's not unique in that every commodity has its particularities, right? Not the exact same ones, but it, it, their own ones. So this is where my book zooms out of electricity and sort of theorizes what how we can understand um, markets and um, capitalism today, I'd say every object has these contours to its agency that the experts around it work with. So I developed this concept of techno-economics, uh, which is also the subtitle of the book, to theorize this general, more general phenomenon. And... It's about how experts' economic imaginations, right, the, the economic formations that they create for us to live with come to being during those interactions with non-humans around them, uh, working with their constraints and capabilities. So it could be electricity. It could be it's, uh, you know transmission physics. Uh, but it could also be the spreadsheet as, uh, as a technology that many, uh, of course, data analysts work with. And I think this is how technoscientific capitalism is unfolding today. We live with the economic imaginations of computer programmers and electrical engineers
1: as much as those of
0: policymakers.
1: That's fascinating. Thank you very much for you know showing us how to think with electricity. Uh, throughout the current economy, you also take us through the cultural settings where electric grid grids come to life and you call these settings work cultures amidst anthropological debates over whether to do away with cultures and object of analysis what made you hold on to work cultures and how does this concept enhance our grasp on how markets are built and maintained
0: right so the book provides these close-ups to a few work cultures as i call them um like Computer programmers and data analysts who are active in electricity trading is one. um, And optimization engineers who are active in designing smart grids is another one. Um, In defining a work culture, I use sociologists and Swidler's theorization of culture, which goes beyond um, the culture that's about beliefs and values, but theorizes culture as, as something that provides a toolkit to its members that affords them a range of actions. right? Um, and that's exactly what I see on the trading floor that I study, or the grid lab that I study, that people, scientists, engineers, have their instruments and toolkits that give them a range, a repertoire of actions on a day-to-day basis. Of course, Anne Larry was thinking more about symbols and rituals. I'm thinking more spreadsheets, face conductors, but, you know, same difference. I think this study of work culture may advance how we understand how markets and capitalism work. The day in and day out of it beyond explicit ideological commitment. So, you, I mean... I guess, I guess as common knowledge, you know, in popular discourse or even in scholarship, there's this ten- tendency to plaster the label of neoliberalism, neoliberalization on any sort of new marketization, any new market form. Um, I think work culture gives us the fine-grained framework to go beyond that, and it also plays to, you know, our strengths as anthropologists. It shows what a comfort zone for an expert is, to which to some extent reproduces itself uh, on a day-to-day basis because they have a certain investment in training and in technology and so forth. So um, to illustrate a little bit, um, the uh, data culture in electricity trading, which I talk and detail about in um, in chapter two. Um, I I talk about how this has culminated in the proliferation of third-party information, intelligence, market intelligence firms that sort of collect uh, very detailed information about what the electric grid is looking like today, you know, what the age of this power plant is, what the uh, fuel type of it is, et cetera, et cetera. And then they sell this information to um, traders uh, in hopes that they will make more profit. Now, and these places, of course, are populated by coders, you know, data whizzes. what I talk about there is that even when you know, that causation, whether this extra information is increasing someone's profits, cannot be verified granularly on a day-to-day basis, you're lacking that proof today, tomorrow, this month, maybe even next month, you don't just quit, right? You don't, You can, in fact, you can go a long time without having to prove that. You don't go to work every day with the conviction conviction that you need to make markets more efficient today, but you do go to work every day knowing your job is to operate a spreadsheet that's fed by a plethora of other spreadsheets, and if you have even found a way to scrape more and more spreadsheets from you know the public and private corners of the inter- internet infrastructure, you know that your boss is going to praise you uh, in front of your colleagues. So these there are these instruments, there are business plans, there are investments that are sticky. And I think we need to be
1: paying attention to what's so sticky in capitalism today and why. That's fascinating. And, you know, that shows us all the more why no particular approaches to culture still remain necessary. Um, And, you know, speaking of market building, uh, in one of your chapters, you show us how the deregulation of U.S. electricity markets was made possible through what you call the gluing of economics and engineering. Um, and, you know, you mentioned um, sort of your contributions to neoliberal, neoliberalism a little bit. So how does thinking of economics and engineering as glued processes contribute to these debates?
0: Right. Yeah, that, that phrase, the gluing of economics and engineering, was used by uh, one of my interlocutors I I talk about in that oral history chapter, um, who was active in uh, one of the first very consequential uh, projects of making a price algorithm uh, for electricity markets. So specifically, that process was um, coming up with a formula that would respect both the Kirchhoff's laws of electricity transmission uh, and what economists would like to see in an efficient market, right? Marginal cost equaling marginal prices, that sort of thing. And that's the process narrated in chapter one. So what's so interesting to me in that story is how the entire process began as a logical continuation in grid engineering at the time of that perennial issue that I uh, mentioned earlier of balancing supply and demand, right? From the late 19th century onwards. So this group came up with ideas of, oh, how can we make it even more fine-grained, you know, how can we achieve even a more uh, granular balance, so maybe we should make the producers and consumers talk to each other, communicate better, et cetera, so this is the very beginnings of a smart grid back in the 80s. And they had labeled their project a homeostatic grid, which to me is the smoking gun showing the roots of this work in systems engineering and um, cybernetics, which... um, historians will tell us, also came out of electrical engineering. So there's this sort of native economic agenda going on in that that technoscientific culture. Separately, of course, there is a political process, right, a free market rhetoric that began to rage uh, at the time. You have uh, the Reagan administration deregulating everything left, right, and center. But the group came to that much later, and only after the project had matured, did they turn to a marketplace framework. And of course, it really helped them sell their ideas to sort of adopt that you know, market rhetoric. Now, what can we learn from this? Um, deregulation of electricity, you could easily explain it away as an instance of neoliberalization, right? It checks all the boxes. But you have this instance of people outside political theory, outside politics, kick-starting that work. And so that brings me back to my concept of techno-economics, um, you know, how these cultures are, uh, of science and technology are generating their native economic agendas. Now, what are you going to do with this information, right? Um, it doesn't mean that neoliberalism is just not real. It, it doesn't uh, exist. It does mean that we might be attributing it more force than it has. And if you are deducing from the story that, see, you know, scientists and engineers sort of come up with their own agendas, but they get co-opted by neoliberalism. So that's a valid deduction that you can come up with. But then, then the question will be, how come? How does it have that appro- appropriate appropriating force? So that's something to be explained, right? In either case, or um you know you could ask the question why why do the tools, why do the instruments of a specific work culture Um, sort of compel the members of that um, group to think in terms of, you know, markets. You could ask that. But in either case, I think it's a more nuanced thing than arguing that mere political will enforced itself from top down or
1: trickled down
0: um, straightforwardly.
1: Wonderful. Um, I want to shift our conversation to parts of your work that concerns data and information. So you show us that markets are made through also a process of you know, creating information, data and prices, all of which are mobile. How do these kinds of mobility figure into the electric grid? And how did your ethnographic fieldwork inform this insight?
0: Right. You're right. The, the data culture and electricity trading has created a lot of different kinds of mobility. Um, so at the very least, you have you know, a, tra- a trader sitting in New York trading in Texas. You have an analyst sitting in Boston and specializing in the Midwest, studying the weather of... Uh, Cleveland, I don't know, um, religiously every day so they can predict the prices around that hub better because weather is a big component of, of um, electricity demand. So there's that kind of mobility. I experienced that um, during my field work myself as well because I was um, part of, of uh, another database uh, building effort where we were putting together um, the map of a trans- of the transmission uh, grid uh, in a way that was more sort of comprehensive than what the current markets themselves even have. Um, so I would, you know, one of my team members would say, oh, you, uh, you know, we we're all sitting in Boston, they would say, you know, like, oh, you're in Ohio right now, can you, can you look up this thing for me while you're in Ohio, et cetera. So there, there's that sort of transplantation. Um, but there's also another kind of mobility, there's experts moving from one commodity to the other. So you could have, you know, a gold trader move to electricity or from other energy commodities into electricity, which is more common. You have natural gas traders move to electricity because, you know, electricity prices are affected by natural gas. So there's that that sort of, that helps to have that experience. Um, So, yes, one could say that there's an influx of people into electricity markets today that know more about, spreadsheets than they do about electricity. So that's happening, um, but importantly, for that process to happen, there also needs to be experts who know electricity, uh, who can translate it into a spreadsheet cell, so who can capture things um, uh, in in that sort of mo- mobile form that can then circulate, right? So that that's not going to happen. By someone who's, who's only familiar with the data aspect of things, so that's key for people who have uh, a more passing knowledge of electricity's physics to be active in that market that, in, in the market. So that that translation um, has to happen first. So once again, there's a limit to that mobility. If you're a gold trader, you can't become an electricity trader overnight, or at least not a successful one, just because you're good data analyst or programmer. And that's because electricity
1: kicks back. (laughs) This segues wonderfully to my next question, actually. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, electricity always kicks back is something you repeat throughout the book, which is so, you know, so catchy and does a great job in capturing the essence of your work. Um, And no, I was wondering how, you know, thinking about markets as something that doesn't merely unfold through consumer activity, but through grids and electricity themselves, um, in what ways does this approach contribute to, or maybe even glue, if I may say so, uh, economic anthropology and science and technology studies? Right. Thank you. Um that's true.
0: So um, the, the grid, the electric grid, is becoming a market in itself and the vision um, of, of um, at least a subset of electrical grid engineers who envision the grid as a potential milieu of automated supply and demand balancing, um, which will be secured by added communication technology. So that's the smart grid vision. Um, and and the, these engineers, these experts, are also fascinatingly to me, um, <laughs> very much interested in what they term the social, the social mm. aspect of it. Um, so because consumers, so the, the markets that I mentioned at the very beginning are wholesale markets. Consumers are still left out. Um, they think that the next frontier is to fold the consumer, as you said, um, into the purview of markets so that our littlest electric activity, like turning the lights on or off, becomes a market activity all of a sudden. It's accounted for in, in those terms, as if I'm bidding uh, to buy electricity by turning on the lights. <laughs> so that's why they enlist the help of psychologists and behavior scientists. Mm-hmm. So you're right that I'm thinking at the intersection of economic anthropology and SDS here. Um, and I'm I'm just fascinated with this vision um, that, that it, it is coming from an electrical engineering group, right? That is. Um, of course, you know, familiar with uh, this general uh, economics, uh, you know, microeconomics and so forth as as a lingua franca. They they are familiar. They're um, they have uh, some sort of general training in it, but they they are not interested in producing economic theory. There is, this is not how this project is marketed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that particular thing, I think, might be directing us, to, an analysis of that might be directing us in, in that intersection of economic anthropology and SDS uh, in two ways. Uh, one, I think by shifting attention, our attention to these pockets uh, of economic imagination by scientists and engineers beyond economists, right? What are they doing and whether, how are they um, creating the, the the economic patterns that ultimately we live with, right? Mm-hmm. This is from this is absolutely not just limited to electricity or the electric grid. This is also in all the, you know, uh, the sharing economy, the mm-hmm. apps that we use um, on a daily basis, during transport, etc. So all these optimization apps that surround us um, are coming, are not, you know, markets designed by economists necessarily. So that's one one thing. Shifting our attention to to that, what I think a critical area. And the second thing, um, I don't talk too much about this in the book, but I'm developing it for a different project um, right now. Um, And and that, you know, SDS clearly has had an enduring interest in human-non-human interaction, Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes you find an antagonistic relationship there where, you know, there's the antagonistic sort of resistance versus accommodation, and the material resists, and you kind of circumvent that by doing something else. You st- as a human, you, you try to sort of go around the object to achieve your goal. But I think where I'm sitting, I think where I'm dr- drawing on anthropology and economic anthropology, what I try to show in the book is it's less about overcoming obstacles or limitations, but I think uh, instances of
1: collaboration and thinking with um, mm. instead. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, This brings me to your chapter about activists in West Virginia and Illinois. And in these chapters, we see that people also kick back thanks to knowledge they produce about electricity. And, you know, maybe this relates to sort of going beyond going around the object. Um, So I'm curious about what kinds of political subjectivities can arise through electricity.
0: That's, that's true. Um, in, in the last chapter, I, I report from citizen groups um, who fight against large transmission line projects that are undertaken by some of these marketsters. So they're sanctioned by the markets, uh, which means that they could uh, use eminent domain. So these groups have formed a very um, sophisticated critique uh, about how these lines are about expanding the geography of markets and not inducing reliability. I have to say, I, I, I find this critique very well formed and I have tremendous respect for, for these groups of self-educated users, especially given that in expert circles what you hear very often is that the electricity user is very illiterate about their consumption. They don't give it a second chance. So you see the absolute opposite of that here. Um, so I think this is where I try to expand my... Um, conception of techno-economics onto the users, right? So this is not just about experts, but also us users, our economic imaginations taking shape in these interactions. as uh, We use electricity or, uh, I don't know, we, we call a... Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to name... I would call a Lyft or Uber. Um, <laughs> uh, now, the specific shape of that interaction and the resulting political subjectivity... Will be of course different in the corners of the U.S. that I study than, let's say, in South Africa, which is brilliantly studied by Antina von Schnitzler mm-hmm. um, or you know, Nikil Anand, who looked at residents' water use in, in Mumbai. So in those cases, what I find is um, uh, there's this questioning of the liberal dogma, right? So the residents, the um, users, are questioning. The, the idea that the citizen customer should face the government on neutral ground—they're just, you know, parties to this contract—as um, if there's no histories, uh, you know, they're entangled in uh, histories of impoverishment and racism. In the cases I, I studied, the critique itself was very liberal, so that they were that the citizens and I use the word citizen there because it's important that Mm -hmm. they are citizens and citizenship is kind of the backbone of that critique, Um, that um, the citizen customers and uh, the authorities should meet each other on neutral ground, that there is a social contract, but that's being violated by the excesses of of these uh, markets, right? the encroachments on this most sacred thing, which is private property. So the capitalist mode of production is works fine, um, but we're witnessing the excesses, violations of of capitalism. We're holding our end of the bargain. You're not holding your end of the bargain, Mm. sort of um, critique. And it is actually very much um, about honoring what a market should be doing, which it's not doing, (laughs) right? that mm-hmm. from where they stand, so it's an artificial market. It's not. It should be honoring supply and demand. It's not honoring. Mm-hmm. Sub, so it's creating artificial shortages by not producing right where the demand is. It's trying to import from so far, right? Now it's trying to serve the Washington D.C. area by like this other corner of West Virginia, West Virginia's coal, mm-hmm. etc. So there is um, quite a bit of difference, and I think. Um, that those differences are also themselves result, results of the infrastructural history that has unfolded in these places, as opposed to, let's say, South Africa and Mumbai. So I do not I, I do sort of go over the liberal consensus um, argument that is often made about the US, right? So that the private property, the sacredness of that just being sort of infusing sort of public culture. I don't qu- quite agree with that, but if, if there's this is something to be explained is what I say through those infrastructural interactions. Um, if there is, if, if the uh, repertoire of um, citizens are sort of compelling them to make this kind of argument, there, there is a history, there's an infrastructural history to that.
1: Absolutely. And I'm very glad that you're drawing attention to this. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your methodology I was particularly struck by your following words in the epilogue. The anthropologist's role is to connect the dots between the different nodes in ethnographic representation. And you do a marvelous job at this throughout the book by opening the electric black box, so to speak. You, know, you show us how these you know, seemingly disparate nodes are um, truly and inextricably connected. So for our listeners who might be interested in similar projects, could you take us through your process of identifying, connecting, and unblackboxing nodes of electricity or infrastructure?
0: Right. First of all, thank you very much <laughs> for your kind words. Um, so you're touching on two very important things, a methodology and a write-up. Um, so to start with the methodology, you're right. Uh, it's, I'll admit that it's tough, the question of where to start. Right? You, you don't, you can't start by booking a flight to your field when your field is the electric grid. <laughs> but I think there is a way to do um, what you know Tim Mitchell does in his Carbon Democracy, this this uh, you know follow the oil um, uh, idea in electricity as well. So when you follow electricity, um, it moves from one node to another. So your methodology can emulate that, acknowledging that you can't study and represent every single one, um, but pass through enough to be able to tell um, what's more consequential, or to adopt a bit more of an SDS, uh, uh, you know, terminology, the, the obligatory passage points, <laughs> um, uh, and you sit through, you know, your thousandth presentation on the optimization of the electric grid, and then you go, okay, optimization is a key area that is giving direction to electricity flows today and electricity markets. So I had that version of uh, snowballing um, following, Mm -hmm. you know, from one place to the other. Um, So for instance, when I was doing my database work that I talked a little bit about, um, just trying to find, you know, the locations of each uh, transmission line, what their carrying capacity is, this and that, you know, you go through Public sources, etc., um, collecting information, and you you translate so that translation work into a spreadsheet cell, so that people, other people, can work with it without actually having to go to Ohio. Um, so I I was doing that. I came across I was looking for a particular transmission line, and I came across this blog post that was so different from everything I had read by that point. So this was only a couple months into my most sustained year of field work 2013 um, it was just it was very uh, sophisticated but it was also very um, angry um, mm-hmm. so up until that point I had only seen you know rose everyone's happy electricity doesn't court the kind of controversies that you know petroleum does except for for the case of Enron which it looks like everyone has forgotten that that was also related to electricity <laughs> markets. So, um, you, you know, it was all nice and rosy. So then I saw that uh, sort of um, blog post that was talking about how, as I said, you know, electricity markets is not art- artificial market. It's not honoring supply and demand, and so on and so forth. I was very intrigued by this, and uh, for the purposes of my day, I had to discard that uh, because it didn't fit in the spreadsheet cells. There's no, you know column for protests, it, is, it just doesn't translate. And that's actually part of the work culture that argument that I'm trying to make. There's just no way to respond to it in, in, that, in that particular, uh, in those parameters. But then as an ethnographer, I can't follow it. So then I emailed them and, uh, and they were very welcoming. So that, that those, um, um, those were the people from West Virginia that became my uh, fourth field and fourth, fourth chapter. So you, as an ethnographer, you can follow, follow through those connections. And, um, as, and at one point, it was just, you know, I'm hearing the same kind of protest. I'm hearing the same kind of optimization, same kind of this mm-hmm. and that, and then um, I'm just going to write this book. <laughs> and then that segues to the write-up part of the question. Um, where you experience a disconnect, uh, the kinds I talk about in the epilogue. Um, so a downside of, uh, of that work culture is you can get stuck in it. You, you know, everyone around you understand it. you use the same vocabulary, understand what you're saying easily, and then you sort of get stuck a little bit. And for me, that was interesting that what I considered to be the same sort of situation, same electricity markets, one of my fields, you know, and, and there people have sort of very passing, very little knowledge they uh, of, the, of the next field, right, that I have, right, so they've never been there. For a lot of um, data-based folks, even electrical engineers, they, you know, they don't even have to visit a power plant in their lifetime to do their work. So um, there are many disconnects uh, that you start seeing when you study an infrastructure like this, and then, uh, and it's not, because of a lack of sympathy, right? So at my my humble capacity, I would try to sort of bridge that a little bit, you know, try to tell, you know, do a little presentation uh, about this and that environment. Um, and then you do get a sympathetic sort of nod, but you know, if your expert is not able to intervene in what you're saying with the instruments that are available to them, they're just going to nod and walk away because they have a deadline tomorrow that they need to meet. So they just move on, right? So, And then that brings me to that quote you cited. I thought at least that the least I can do as an anthropologist is to make these connections in writing and say, hey, this is the same story. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the very least that we can do. Now, what kind of impact that can have in the quote unquote real world and in terms of change and acting change I don't know, (laughs) but I think changing things. um, I think what it will take to change the real world, to have these conversations actually take place more organically, uh, it's it's just that you have to engage these techno-economic, techno-scientific worlds. Like you have to act from within technological work cultures to create the kinds of political economy you want. You have to ask yourself the question of, you know, what kinds of tools, what kinds of instruments can I um, uh, contribute to the making of if I want a more just, a more fair distribution of electricity and money.
1: Wonderful. I'm really glad that, you know, this conversation is also propelling these kinds of questions um, as you give us some answers. Um, And Also, in terms of your methodology, I was curious about your positionality throughout your fieldwork. You know, we're all too familiar with the trope of, you know, European or North American anthropologists studying the global south, uh, but not so familiar with a woman from the global south studying the United States. So I'm curious about how you positioned yourself throughout the different stages of your work.
0: Thank you so much for asking that explicitly. I feel like all (laughs) too often this question gets asked implicitly. Um, (laughs) Kind of like, you know, explain yourself. (laughs) But this is, yeah, once again, this is one of the questions I'm so glad is this is, you know, uh, motivating us to ask and discuss. Um, I think, so... There is I th- maybe this is sort of a more layered version, or continuation of the studying up issue. Um, I should begin by saying that I had a lot of privileges you know, conducting this research uh, um, while at graduate school in, in graduate school at MIT. Um, you know, passing through the expert circles that I uh, did coming from MIT was actually some, something that made people take me more seriously. Uh, that they made them take me, you know, um, re- made them relate uh, to me. Um, also, because uh, these expert circles, and I talk a bit about this in the book too, they're not bound by national borders. I shared my legal status with the many people I was working with too. So, on, in the smart smart grid laboratory, um, especially, so being on a visa. Uh, in the U.S. or later, you know, going through immigration, naturalization, all that was um, things that I shared with with many uh, of my interlocutors, and with my citizen activist interlocutors, where there was less international diversity, um, they welcomed me to learn about the qu- their corner of their states, and as I I didn't know about those particular places. It didn't matter whether I was coming from Boston or Istanbul, so that was very refreshing, really. And that is very interesting. That um, during my research, I don't recall an instance of this becoming um, an an issue, or just you know me sort of sticking out a little bit. But I think, I mean, you're drawing attention to a bigger issue where, in anthropology, this is. Feeling still to this day, feeling a little bit of an anomaly. There is an expectation that um, uh, you know a Euro-American scholar can, male Euro-American scholar can study anywhere in the world. The opposite is something that requires explanation. And um, and I think it is it is possible that you know that expectation is a barrier for more people like me going against the stream, which which you're identifying here. So I. Get that implicit surprise uh, at my interests still um, uh, from fellow anthropologists which might also speak of doubt regarding my capabilities right there is a fine line if there is any line at all so I hope that we see more self-questioning among our colleagues among our fellow anthropologists who express the surprise and they take a moment to ask themselves why. And also I hope our hiring practices, uh, our evaluation of junior scholars, all those practical matters soon catch up to our
1: tastes and scholarship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, And, you know, just to make clear, I wanted to draw attention to, to you sort of subverting these expectations, maybe, um, to show how, you know, maybe these expectations are fraught themselves. So I'm really glad that, you know, you told us a little bit about um, your positionality, not only during your fieldwork, but generally in academia as well. Um, another aspect of your work that I really admired was your writing style. You have a vivid and digestible way of showing readers how important electricity markets are, even as you introduce what could easily come across as technical bits of information. Did writing for a broader audience figure into how you formulated your work? What are some strategies you adopted as you organized your ethnography?
0: Thank you, first of all, so much for your kind words. You're right that electricity markets are probably no one's first choice as a beach read. So, I do worry about writing a compelling account. Um, I guess I'd read it on the beach. (laughs) I know you would. Uh, I guess one of the best compliments I've ever gotten um, was from my writing group in Baltimore, which is where I was before Singapore. Um, uh, And my writing group is a creative writing group, it's uh, mostly non academics. Um, where I had the audacity to workshop the first pages of this book. And I had someone say, I was really dreading reading this, um, but I actually enjoyed it. So that was, I didn't know which way to take it at first, but now I'm taking it as high praise. Um, So that's, I guess, one strategy to write with creative writers who don't have time for you to sort of belabor the point. Um, but, but apart from that, I think it's it's a very ongoing process for me because as, as someone who personally finds um, the technical bits fascinating to distill what really matters and put that on the page, I see a progression from the dissertation definitely um, to the book. And now with my second project, I get to that point hopefully much faster. And ultimately, I'm an anthropologist of capitalism, so I need to be writing things that speak to that, that have stakes and that communicate the stakes to the reader. So, um, um, and I, I, so I, I have to sort of keep that as my northern star. Um, being fascinated with your sub- subject
1: mm-hmm. doesn't hurt. Absolutely. And you mentioned the second project. May I ask um, about what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions that you're interested in currently?
0: Yeah, I think electricity is going to continue to interest me and yield, you know, article length projects that go beyond the book, whether in the U.S. or not. So right now I'm wrapping up an article uh, on the concept of real time uh, that I'm pretty excited about. It del- delves more in depth into temporality and markets. Um, so that that's one thing. But I've been also pursuing my second book-length project for the last two years, which is also about capitalism's infrastructures, but on a completely new topic, at least to me. Um, it's about global supply chain logistics and port cities. Mm-hmm. So I set that in the port city of Mersin in the eastern Mediterranean in southern Turkey. Um, Mersin hosts a port that's operated by Singaporean firm, so the project extends to Singapore as well. So I talk with maritime technocrats and technicians in both places. Basically, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, and my angle there is that, you know, today you hear more and more that ports are removed from cities. You know, you don't have the sailors, uh, you know, <laughs> the roaming cities anymore. So they're they're removed from cities because there's the search for, you know faster vessel turnover, and they're investing in modular infrastructure and so forth. But then you look at a place like Mersin that's very much caught up in these sort of concentric circles, like these scales of maritime capitalism. You have, you know, it's a lifeline for Iraq and Syria right now, so it's plugged into that. It's plugged into Southeast Asia through Singapore. It's uh, it's part, it's it's a big stop in the Mediterranean supply chain. So the question right now is, What does a port city look like today in um, contemporary globalization? So here, too, I feel that I have a puzzle, something I don't quite get. Um, It's an area I know little about still. um, And I think that's a very good feeling to have at the beginning of a project.
1: Wonderful. And we're certainly looking forward to the fruits of that project. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Zdan Shiling, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Likewise. I'm your host, Aliza This discussion of the current economy, electricity markets, and techno-economics, published by Stanford University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago.